парой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердце нашей земле... Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. And as always, I'm joined by Rusana Novikova and Margaret Budik. As you well know, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who generously give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25 and up. So if you really like this podcast and enjoy it, uh, please consider becoming a supporter by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. So this week's interview is, I, I, I'm rarely, and I said this on Twitter, I, I've interviewed over, I've done over 250 interviews for this podcast since I started. And um, they're, they're, it's very rare uh, that I'm excited to interview somebody. I mean, I, I'm interested in all the people I interview, but there are certain people that I'm very excited to talk to. And Vladislav Zubok was one of them, um, mostly because... You know, he, I, I really lo- like him as a historian, the type of work he does. But I, when I started reading his new books, Collapse, which this interview addresses, and I, it just really drew me in as both a history but also his ability to craft that story. So this week's interview is, a, is an interview I conducted as part of the uh, Reese Spring interview series, Openness, Acceleration, Restructuring, the Soviet 1980s. This was the fifth out of six interviews. The, the, the final interview with Alexei Yurchuk will be out in a couple of weeks. So, um, you know, why don't we jump into it? And Rusana, why don't you read Vladislav's uh, bio? Sure. Vladislav Zubok is professor of international history at the London School of Economics. He has authored several books on the Cold War, the Soviet Union, Stalinism, and Russia's intellectual history in the 20th century. His new book is Collapse, the End of the Soviet Union, published by Yale University Press. Here's Vladislav Zubok. So I, I thought we'd start our discussion about your book Collapse at the beginning that you start the book. And that is, you give this recollection of hearing about Gorbachev's removal from power on August 19, 1991. You're on a, a layover in Ireland. Uh, why don't you take us back through that moment and its personal significance for you? Well, you know, I was at the time 33, and I thought the world is my oyster because uh, the Soviet society opened up. I was uh, a young academic, relatively young, still academic, working for the U.S. and Canada Institute, the creme de la creme of um, American watchers at the time. We wrote all kinds of reports. We, uh, We were on the news. And then, of course, Gorbachev gave us so much that we took for granted. And all of a sudden, I was not a party member, never was. The KGB tried to recruit me, they failed, so they gave up on me. But I began to travel, and of course, uh, my dream was to to come to the United States. And since uh, 1988, I got, you know, gazillion of invitations because I was English-speaking, I was young, I didn't think in orthodox language. So, you know, I, I, I received simultaneously three invitations to Stanford, Amherst, 
in Ohio to teach there. And this was exactly the situation in July, August 1991. Here was me sitting in Moscow and then thinking about my next project and having all these invitations. And my wife and uh, little son already were uh, in Amherst, uh, Massachusetts. So it was really, really difficult at the time to buy a ticket on airflow because, you know, prices uh, were still Soviet prices, low prices. And there were many bidders because the borders were, of course, open. And I stood in line and I remember it was hopeless. I told the stories, oh, I have my wife there, my son there. But it didn't endear the ladies to me because I said, oh, this guy, you know, we have a family over there. No, no, no. And one time I remember one Aeroflot lady all of a sudden told me, I remember this phrase, it's time to leave this country. I was kind of frozen almost. And she gave me this coveted ticket. It turned out to be the ticket on the day the coup makers introduced tanks to Moscow. And of course, my parents bid me farewell. It drove me to Shermetyo Airport. And I left without even realizing what is a food because tanks appeared a few hours after I left. And it was a Shannon in Shannon Airport that some of my neighbors were grouped around a big TV screen watching Gorbachev. But I remember very clearly Gorbachev by that time was such an old news. Everybody got grew tired so much of his uh, long-windedness that I avoided the screen. And it was astonished, finally got rid of this wind back. And I didn't realize at first, but they were told us, there in the New York Times, and there was this big headline. And it was as if the floor uh, disappeared under me and the ceiling fell. It was, you know, it was the pro, as I learned later, uh, the researching in my book for this chapter called the Junta or the Junta, the coup, that many people had similar reactions. First, seconds, complete disbelief, you know, stop pulling my leg. Then, absolute horror and fear. Absolute horror and fear because the reaction to what we experienced during those brief years of Glasnost, Perestroika, and you know, relaxation, free, almost free travel, no more party controls over many things. The reaction to this could only be an immediate return to 1937. This is what people believed in. It was nothing in between. Either we're having this relaxation all that, or we are back to the worst Stalinist times. I'm just telling you this because this is how people's minds work, probably. Interesting. When you started to, to think about and write this, this book, and that memory came back to you, did that, did you, does it serve to, to frame this, fear, this moment of fear and foreboding, uh, at the, you know, the, as you said, the floor dropping out from below you and many other people feeling, probably feeling the same? Did this, in, in this incident, this moment of your life frame the the book itself in a way but this is i forgot this is it chapter 10 or 9 so there's a lot of things happening before and i kept reminding myself emotions are hugely important for history rumors fears you know all these things but the task of a historian is to place this emotions these fears these rumors into a proper historical context in other words were those things exaggerated? Were they just a figment of our imagination or not? And several times in my book, I 
wrote about big fear, small fear, medium fear. For instance, the fear in September 1990, when I don't remember where I was at the time, probably in Moscow, but I didn't experience, but it turned out many people had that fear, dark September, I call it, when people sincerely thought that there's some suspicious military exercises that it would end, it could end in a coup against Gorbachev. And next thing you see would be only military guys on the Lenin's mausoleum. And when one photographer, Alexander Feklistov, helped me to find pictures from my book, he sent me one picture that I couldn't believe it. Those, that was the Lenin's mausoleum at night, Lenin mausoleums at night, with the row of Soviet generals on it. I said, where did you get this picture? It exactly reflected the fear of night, and they were all, for, you know, it's just to say that historians, uh, there are historians who specialize on emotions. Historians who specialize on fear, the grand peur, you know, great fear, you know, during the French Revolution, all that. But I wanted to write a synthesis. And aside from emotions were other things, the reforms, you know, calculations, diplomatic channels. So that was only part of my framing. Well, you know, why you start the book by kind of looking at going through how we understand the collapse of the Soviet system, and you, you describe it as a puzzle. Why, why is it a puzzle? Well, to tinker a little bit with that, well, first of all, the title of my book is The Fall of the Soviet Union, not The End of the Soviet Union. That's fine. But then I didn't write only about the collapse of the puzzle of the collapse of the system. I wrote about the collapse of the Soviet Union because a number of scholars argued maybe it's like splitting, you know, splitting the end of the needle and that kind of thing. Was it the system? Was it the state? I thought that Gorbachev at the time already successfully, successfully or not, well, dismantled much of the Soviet system from above. He trimmed down the power of the party. The Politburo was no longer omnipotent. Um, the party was no longer uh, leading the uh, controlling economy, you know, many other things. Uh, so you can argue that Gorbachev dismantled the Soviet system. But uh, why the whole state then collapsed, for me, was a puzzle. And, you know, they, you know pe some people might say, well, what, what's the puzzle? What's, what's, you know, doesn't, it, it, it doesn't take... Too much rocket science to figure out that without the, the party, without the system, the whole caboodle would, would, would come tumbling down. Yes, but not true, because if you combine all the things and all falling oil prices, a burden of the military industrial complex, the party being gradually eased out of power, you know, nationalities and their grievances and uh, rising separatism, if you uh, even combine this, together, Chernobyl, I forgot to mention, of course, all those things, neither of that, that, those causes, factors separately could explain the collapse of the Soviet Union as a whole, complete collapse, or even if you take these factors together, if you, even you, if you combine it. But, and then I go through it in my preface uh, saying, well, you know, I spent, honestly spent, 30 years of my life after the end of the Soviet Union, reading everything that was published. I don't cite most, but I read most of the stuff. And 
I was not convinced. And every time I tried to teach the, the Soviet course, and it ended with the collapse of the Soviet Union, and I played with what to recommend to my students. Oh, read this, read that. And I always ended up with the same feeling. I cannot understand it myself, not to mention I cannot explain it fully to my students. So the result was I, I decided to write the book. And, you know, one of the uh, lines in the preface is, in the center of a puzzle is Gorbachev, in the center of a puzzle. So I do not decenter Gorbachev, but I add so much more, uh, not really as a garnish to Gorbachev, but, you know, many other people, many other factors, some processes that Gorbachev inadvertently set in motion but didn't understand and could not, prob it could not probably understand at the time. This is why I start with a puzzle and I end up maybe, you know, a little with some degree of academic arrogance with some conclusions. Here we are. Here we are. This is what it was. So do you, do you, I mean, this is, this is what's interesting because Gorbachev, you know, he is such a key player um, and maybe the cornerstone, perhaps, I mean, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but if I understand you correctly, is the cornerstone of this puzzle. It, it's almost, he's the indispensable actor here. And, and I, you know, your descriptions of Gorbachev, I hear of him that I did him, and really his force of political will comes out quite clearly. But what I was really surprised by was Gorbachev's relationship to Lenin. So much so that he's almost like cosplaying Lenin in many, many cases. You know, his embrace of neo-Leninism in general. You know, talk about this aspect of, of Gorbachev. Did you, were you privy to this or was this a surprise for you too? Well, let me start with a, with a disclaimer. And Bill Taubman and I, we've, we actually, we, we've known each other for many years. And not to conceal from you, Sean, that I was in Amherst in the fall of 1991 because I was his, his guest, the first guest from the Soviet Union, I guess, right? And the last guest from the Soviet Union because when I finished, there was no more, so no more union. So we argued in a very, very amicable way. And I had a problem with Gorbachev. First, I hugely, I'm hugely grateful to him for what he did to me personally in my generation because you know, let's suppose he hadn't appeared. Let's suppose he hadn't appeared. And somebody more Andropovian kind would have become the leader. My life would have been much more miserable and certainly not exciting because of, you know, non-party guy, you know, in, in part with Jewish uh, background. Forget about it. You have one option to immigrate to Israel and just get stuck there, then. Though I'm immensely grateful to Gorbachev for what happened. But as a historical figure, when I keep hearing from my Western friends and scholars, the best thing that Gorbachev did was to let the Soviet Union collapse. Okay, okay. So the, you know, how I hear it, the greatest success of Gorbachev was to let the Soviet Union fail. And that's a historical paradox. And that, you know, did not exactly make me awake at night, but, you know, during all those years, I kept thinking something is not quite right here. Well, not to mention that he was a commander in chief. He took all the, you know, he wanted to preserve the Soviet Union. He came this saying he wanted to preserve the Soviet Union. So then came this explanation by Kotkin that he was too ideological, that helped me. And, uh, and now I... I wrote about his Leninism. 
His Leninism was strange. You're right. He was almost cosplaying it. He was not trying to be Lenin. He was inspired by Lenin as a historical figure who just comes and changes history in such an incredible way. And indeed, here, as all of us historians, we would agree. You remove Lenin from 1917, what do you have? Right. You know, a minority party would not have come to power and all that. So Gorbachev, in a sense, is the same kind of figure. He saw himself as the same kind of figure coming from, you know, that uh, little village Privolnoye, you know, getting education at Moscow State University, getting some ideas and coming to the top of the country when everyone says we can no longer live like that and, and becoming a Lenin. Becoming Lenin, not in the sense of replaying Leninism, but becoming a reformer who just by sheer power of political and intellectual will, not by force, not by terror, changes the course of the country. And this, I think, is an, an, a, a key to Gorbachevian idealism. He kept reading Lenin. He you know, says, you know, I write in my book in early 1989, he almost enacts Lenin after reading Solzhenitsyn's novel Lenin in Zurich. And that kind of caught my attention when I found it in, in the diaries of his assistant, Chernayev. I said, oh, wow, I read Lenin Zurich about the same time, maybe a bit earlier in some is that. Yeah, I was impressed how negative was Lenin, how, you know, fanatical was Lenin. He was definitely a negative figure for me. And here Gorbachev impersonating him as if he was still his model. That's really strange. That's really strange. And I think it, it, it constrained Gorbachev. It inspired him immensely because after all, even we, if we are mistaken, you know, faith, impersonation of someone who is a great person, Napoleon, I don't know, Lenin, gives us a certain political will to move on. And it gave Gorbachev immense political will, an incredible panache, huspa, to move with his reforms throughout 87, 86, 87, 88. But then Lenin becomes a constraint because you read Lenin, read Lenin, and you find nothing about what to do next, how to deal with the consequences of that revolution from above or that or the whatever turn that you, you made as Lenin too. And here I found Gorbachev desperately trying to find another intellectual anchor of the same magnitude, of the same historical scale, and he could not. And he simply never found it. You know, it's been described that Perestroika was also at some kind of attempt at a neo-NEP, right? This period in the 1920s of relative kind of mixed economy, relative openness. And Bukharin also, and you know, Stephen Cohen has re uh, wrote about this years ago. Uh, you know, the rehabilitation of Bukharin. Where does Bukharin play in this story, in your view? Very little, very little. I found very little about Bukharin. It's true that Gorbachev read Stephen F. Cohen his book on Bukharin. He, I think he read this book a little bit later, but here I don't know. Ask Bill Taubman about it. he his reforms were not a new NEP for many reasons. A because the NEP started basically basically Lenin said let's go back to what existed a few years ago. Period. You know, let, you know let's finish this nonsense with the war communism and everybody said oh hallelujah and went back to what all they did in 
And, you know, many other things, of course, not to mention that those smart people who devised the financial reform of 1921-22, Chervonets, you know, the Nivol Ruble, they, they were brilliant. They were on par, totally on par with, America, with American and the Western European economists of the time because they were trained like that. Now, full forward to Gorbachev, who planned his economic reforms. Nikolai Rishkov was appointed, if anybody remembers, the guy who was a red director who built air, military aircraft in the Urals. And he brought the best minds of the country, Abel Agambegyan, Tatiana Zaslavska was a sociologist, and many other people. Oh, yeah, that generation for that, that generation, the NAP was an ancient history. For them, the real experience, the real ba- battlefield of ideas were the 60s, the Kosygin reforms, you know, Liberman and his discussion about mixed economy. You're right about mixed economy, Sean, but what happened was not even a mixed economy. I write in my book that the ideas produced by those people, I should stress, not by Gorbachev. Not by Gorbachev, but he sort of embraced uh, those ideas prepared by this group. Actually, since some drop-off time, they began secretly to meet, you know, in 1982, 83, a a small footnote. I was struck recently by checking Andropov's, uh, not diary, but logbook. And he met Rishkov and another guy, Dolby, also, you know, the economy guy in the Polybro more than anybody else during his brief tenure. So that gives you an idea that he was concerned about the economy. He talked to those guys. He set the process in motion. Gorbachev inherited the product. And the product was awful. The product was absolutely disastrous. Because to put it in, in, in two, two lines, there, there were two decrees that hollowed up Soviet economy more than anything else. The decree on state enterprises and the de- decree on cooperatives. Originally, and this is ironic, the decree on state enterprises used the notion of private property. But then comes the this uh, you know, comes the Gromico, who was still in the Politburo, <laughs> and he said this this word. I think we resolved this question of property in October 1970. All right, okay. And then Gorbachev suddenly gave in and said, okay, 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 we remove this from, you know, and it turns out that Gorbachev also was afraid of private property because he later admitted that I'm afraid that some speculators and shadow sector of the economy would take all the property and rob people again. Well, he was not exactly wrong, but what he did, what Rishkov did in the crowd, uh, created exactly that by uh, inadvertently. What they did, they gave property to state enterprises, collectives, but in reality to red directors who call the shot. They empowered that those state directors to do uh, whatever they wanted with some share of profits and with uh, production. So they gave uh, incredible authority on something Lenin never gave during the NAP, the freedom to sell products abroad. Suddenly, the state monopoly on on trade was abolished. And simultaneously, and inexplicably, in the law, in the decree of cooperatives written by smart guys, some of them, you know, I discovered like, but not apparently not in economic terms, because they introduced this one line about the ability to set up commercial banks. Those commercial banks became sort of the biggest, you know, the blacksmith of illegal wealth, if you like, by turning cashless 
economy into cash, by finding ways through the KGB and other guys to stash this, uh, siphon off this cash abroad. So that's the beginning. When people write, it's, you know, Gorbachev failed and then there was crony capitalism. That was the beginning of crony capitalism. Most importantly, my last line is when Gorbachev signed, signed off on, the, on those decrees, his idea was to fill the shelves. To, to make consumers more satisfied, the result was taking out goods uh, in a, and hollowing out the existing economy and existing consumer sector. What is tragic that neither Rishkov nor Soviet economists and also Gorbachev never understood what they did and why this scheme led them, uh, you know, instead of north, let's say south, you know, <laughs> they had this two more years and instead economy went from bad to worse. Well, here's a here's a comment uh, in, in the chat that I'd like you to reflect on. Uh, it reads, you seem to argue that part of Gorbachev's weakness stemmed from his analysis of Soviet history and that he viewed the Stalinist period as as a corruption of Lenin's vision. And he wanted to re, uh, rejuvenate the system, uh, you know, and return to Lenin's vision, right? This is a, seems to be a, a play throughout efforts to reform in the Soviet system throughout the 20th century. Uh, the, the commenter says, I felt that you at times seemed to fall into a similar trap by arguing that Gorbachev essentially represented a corruption of Andropov's vision. And the system could have been saved through a return to an Andropian, uh, Andropovian, sorry, model of reform. Uh, what is your uh, response to this? Oh, oh, oh! I've been accused so many times of being a nostalgic fan of Andropov. Well, let me say I hated the guy. I feared the KGB. The KGB did not like me. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was prophylactized one time by the KGB. So I'm not a friend of Andropov and and Andropovian, you know, way. What I argued, I guess, and, and you, you know, the, the, the reader uh, is absolutely correct. And I'm not the first. I'm uh, part of the generation that fervently believe in the Soviet Union that once you return to the NAP kind of, you know, situation somehow, and remove Stalinist system that smothered the NAP, then you have a chance, another chance for socialism. You know, the problem with me, I believed it until I was 20 or so. Then I stopped. I read other books, you know, I, I you know, grew out of it. Gorbachev continued, I think, to believe. And that's his, his Leninism, if you like his Bukharinism maybe, was a, a, a factor of his provincialism because he was mired in province where he didn't have a milieu. That's very, very familiar for all of us who grew up, on, grew up in the Soviet Union. The only milieu in existence was in Moscow, like surrounded by Stalinists. There, Nina Andreeva came from there. You know, I cannot, I cannot abandon my principles, and not because not for for a chance, of course. And then you move to provinces even further, and you're surrounded by troglodytes. And you know, Gorbachev had only one milieu: his own wife. And they were part of the same generation who left Moscow in 1955 and uh, then sort of followed uh, through uh, reading, but not really. Yeah, then Gorbachev talked to Mliner, talked to other things, but it was not the same like being in a milieu uh, day after day, year after year. So he got stuck there. 
And he returned with the outdated ideas of, oh, okay, you know, let's start with Leninism and let's read our faith in the 60s. But by the end of the 70s, that was, uh, you know, we moved to algebra or something. Oh, we believe we're moving to algebra. And none of us, of course, had it in the, you know, had any recipe how to reform it. So my take on this, and I want to correct maybe the impression that I myself created in in my book, Uh, everything that goes wrong is my fault, by the way, in the book. To correct this impression, I think what Gorbachev did, he started with outdated ideas of the 60s and Leninist ideas. But, you know, he still could have corrected those ideas had he preserved some mechanisms to do it. And some of the post tools were unsavory. I mean, they were basically, you know, the party <laughs> reformed or unreformed, they were the KGB and so on and so forth. So basically telling the, those agents of change that he unleashed in the wrong way. Oh, 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 no, guys, this is the wrong way. You know, you no longer can trade in this way with the West by softening off oil and oil prices in this kind of pirate waves. Let's do it in another way. Uh, But because he launched democratization and uh, political liberalization practically simultaneously with launching the the decree on properties and decree on state enterprises, he was left uh, with a a new system that was at the time a genius. And it it allowed people to speak, to discuss, to, to think of alternatives. But destroyed any ability to change the course, I'm afraid. Now, you know, you you write uh, in, in Collapse, and a lot of the new scholarship on this period is doing the same, it really writing against this dominant narrative that the Soviet collapse was inevitable. The fall of the Soviet Union was inevitable. Um, so that suggests, of course, there were there were some possibilities along this crazy train of reform that things could have turned out differently. Um, you know, what What other possibilities or turning points do you see that could have ended up differently? And this actually goes, my question also goes along with another question in the chat is, this being silly not taking the power of the state to use essentially violence or other mechanisms to shape things and his indecisiveness in some of these, these and it's throughout the book too, this moments of indecisiveness. Um, you, what other possibilities did that opened up for in in this process? Oh, galore, galore, you know. And Gorbachev, by the way, was quite decisive between, let's say, some point in 1987 when he wrote his book Perestroika for the country in the world, and you know, since the fall of 1987, he began to speak about Glasnost and Stalinism. And 88 was a very decisive year, and towards the end of 88. He essentially, after the 19th party had many times, the real perestroika started. So finally he had, he knew what he wanted to do, as he believed in 1988. He had this party conference. He obtained from this conference, in part by craftiness and stealth, the political mandate to change the entire political system. Okay. He had his economic reforms, but you know, that was the time of, of decision, how you proceed. I said that he, his, his premises were quite understandable at the time. They were historically conditioned. So I'm not arguing that he was, you know, an individually, you know, limited, you know, politician. He was part of that cohort. 
can move an economy by unleashing also political political initiative, initiative of the masses in Leninist style. In other words, instead of just letting people get rich in a Bukharian way, right? It was not enough. For Gorbachev, the messianist, for Gorbachev and new Lenin, people should be masters of their life. You know, that's, that's something different. He, got, he created the system of the Soviets that essentially not, were not even replica of the system that existed in the early 20s. It was more grandiose, in a sense, a super parliament that elected the parliament, then all the republics uh, recreated. You know, to tell Ukraine and, and Russian Federation, you have to create your super parliament and, and, and direct a new parliament. You know, you, it's not necessary to do it. It's not necessary. There's a bifurcation at the end of 88 when I found a discussion with between so-called new thinking and not quite new thinking guys. Not quite because in historiography, they pass for conservatives. And of course, they are later marred by what happened later. So Lukyanov, who later was sort of not a, not a good guy during August 1991, but at that time, at that time, very, very loyal lieutenant of uh, Gorbachev, and he is a you know, classmate of Raisin. He says, oh, we're going into very dangerous waters. Let's assume uh, that the new superparliament of the Soviet Union would have the right to annul and abolish the laws passed by Republican parliaments. It's essentially a fear by Lukianov, who was a lawyer, constitutional lawyer that by creating that ambiguity, constitutional ambiguity, reflected in political institutions, you, you would plant a mine under the Soviet Union because there was a big discussion. Listen, you know, everybody said it. it, 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 it the Soviet Union was in uh, uh, constitutionally a confederation. It's a very fragile construction. We have exit, but since we are moving away from one-party state, we have somehow to compensate for it. And Lukyanov proposed this sort of a vertical velocity, the vertical of power. And oh boy, you know, every new thinker came out, came out and saying, no, 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 no. This is Stalinism for you. This is, you know, too much. You know, we don't want to create it. So it's, it, it reveals an interesting by, you know, not only bifurcation at the time, but binary thinking of people uh, of reforms, because Lukianov was also a man of reform. Either you move full speed ahead in Leninist way and unleash the masses, and you know, or you would inevitably slide back to Stalinism. And when we discussed my own feelings in on August 19, it was the same kind of binary. You either uh, crash crash the whole system or you inevitably slide back to something dreadful and very Stalinist, you know, like 1937. These are are binaries that are still part of Russian intelligentsia today, but you wonder to what extent they actually reflected political reality. This was the first bifurcation, but it's not by by no means the last. You know, the the second is the spring of 89, when, to put it simply, many advisors came to uh, Gorbachev and said, I don't. Uh, and Gorbachev said, what are, what are you taking me for? I'm not brave enough to do it. Okay, it's another small bifurcation, but very significant. In summer 1989, uh, Gorbachev basically lost control of finances and the central bank to the Supreme Soviet. 
he could have entered the line saying, you know, the control over finances is my privilege. You know, it would have been undemocratic. Many people would have attacked him, but he still had a power. As a result, it was economic and financial populism of the worst kind. So you go on and on and on. And of course, everybody says the summer of fall in 1990 was a final bifurcation where he failed to introduce some kind of economic reforms. 500. I went through our of, of projects, how to change Soviet economy. 500 days, 800 days, one day, you know, you know, there are crazy things happening. But for, for a political leader, I guess what was necessary is to take one version, however, whatever version of marketization, and stick with it and attach your political capital to it. And Gorbachev was very, very, not scared, but he was very doubtful. He had doubts about private property. Maybe they will rob people. He had doubts about inflation. What about what happens to the prices and the poor? He had so many doubts that I think these doubts paralyzed him in 1990. So he had some brilliant ideas from his advisors, such as uh, commentarily blank, one of his, his top economic advisor will come a brilliant idea. Even later, uh, some American economists told him very original ideas, how to compensate for inflationary uh, surge, how to compensate for that. Gorbachev completely ignored it. You know, he, he snatched on, he latched on to the idea of 500 days, as we all know, because it was Yavlinsky bringing it from Yeltsin and it, his mind of a politician worked on the way, okay, this will be my bridge to Yeltsin, and Yeltsin and I, we kind of solve all problems. He did not think uh, about economy. He was thinking as a politician, thinking about politics attached to failure, economic failure. The Troika failed, and that dragged him down. Quick shout out to thank listeners like you who are willing to go out of their comfort zones to think about things a little differently. And an even more special thanks to our Patreon supporters. We can only do this with your help. So everyone else, please support our little team here at the SRB Podcast. It can be for as little as $1 a month. You can do this by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog, or go to srbpodcast.org and hit the Patreon button. Now back to the episode. Well, let, let, let's talk about this unleashing the masses, because you do, once the monopoly, the Communist Party's monopoly on politics is broken, you do have this explosion of populist democratic politics all across the political spectrum. Um, how, how did these forces from below shape the reform process and the eventual uh, collapse of this of the state and the system. Well, the first thing that happens, you have discontent with Gorbachevian um, economic reforms that the people clearly see. They see in provinces, especially, they see that cooperate. They take uh, state goods and sell them at uh, the high price in their cooperatives, and in, in in reality, they speculate. They do not create new goods. They do not fill the shelves. They create problems for people. And you, you lead to the first wave of economic discontent, populist discontent, that found its expression in minor strike. You know, about 200,000 miners in Kuzbas and Donbass went on strike. And it was a huge thing. I, I was abroad in the States at that time. I came, I went there, you know, for some fellowship. 
before the minor strike. I returned after the minor strike, and that was a different country. And people told me, oh, this strike changed so much because the polit political leadership, they meant Gorbachev, meeting with the miners and deal with that angry mob. He was above it. He went to back to Crimea and he thought of great ideas, how to silent. So he didn't have the, you know, that the guts to meet with angry Russian people. That's one uh, type of populism that complicated things. And of course, made him even more aware and wary of going along the road of market. Okay. It also probably influenced his decision to some extent not to run openly for, for, for the president of the Soviet Union once uh, he finally began to think of it, right? And people said, you know, we must have the vertical of power. We must have an executive at the top who would be the embodiment of the entire country, all the republics. And already knew that people hated him uh, in, and, and I was angry and perplexed by it, Raisa was uh, so perplexed by it because, of course, in their collective Gorbachevian imagination, they thought that Gorbachev was liberator, emancipator of Russian people. Why they keep hating him? It's all over Chernyayev's diaries. Why Russians are strange people? They hate the person who wants you know, to liberate them. Another way populism works very briefly is by electing all those guys to, uh, you know, to the Supreme Soviet. First to the Congress and then to, to the Supreme Soviet, first of the Soviet Union and, and then the Russian Federation. And the Russian Federation was the worst because the elections were the freest. 1990 was the year of absolute political freedom untarnished by corruption and political manipulation. The KGB was out of the game, the party was out of the game, and money and uh, modern political technologies were not yet in. So there was the freest elections that the Russian had known in its history. And uh, the people elected to the Congress and then Supreme Soviet of the RSFSR, they were the worst populists of any kind. Of, you know, they, they were people who basically, whose economic and political imagination knew no boundaries. I think they were prepared to, to rip everything apart. Uh, and some of them were venal. Some of many proposals from the deputies of the RSFSR Congress that were, let's put it mildly, self-enriching schemes, legitimized you know, by the membership on various committees, and so on and so forth. So in a, in a, in a, instead of one man, however imperfect, Brezhnev, Gorbachev, general secretary, now dealing with the state bank, and basically signing the, 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 the decree to print rubles. You had a number of parliaments, and then the Republican parliaments, not in addition to the Union parliaments, were hundreds of populists, hundreds of populists signed upon, you know, dockifying state social commitments. And what the, the state bank was no longer dependent on the Politburo and the general secretary had to order to print the money to satisfy those commands. So when you look at the numbers, it, you know, it's exponential. In 1989 was the last more or less Prilichny uh, Gort, so the law okay here financially, still troubling, but okay. And 1990 <laughs> had this, you know, inflation. And 1991 was a sheer disaster. Absolutely. By, by some month, I think it was in May 1991, Garashenko, who was the state, uh, head of the state bank, hated by populists, hated by Democrats, but he was a good banker. 
in in, in some essential way. You know, uh, one of the, the 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 issues that historians and commentators have talked about repeatedly is, and you've pointed to this too in our discussion, this tension between politics and economics, and how you know the the problem that Gorb- one of the problems that Gorbachev did is he liberalized both simultaneously, um, and some say you know Gorbachev should have been more like Deng Xiaoping, or or even worse like Pinochet. <laughs> um, what do you was a Chinese road? A, a realist is was a Chinese road a realistic, you know, option for reform. I think the discussion about the Chinese way should be broadened. It's not. It should not be taken literally that uh, Gorbachev could have followed the Chinese way. And you can go through myriad of factors where China in 1980, in the 80s, and the Soviet Union in the 80s were very different societies, very different economies, and so forth. And on this ground, based on this ground, many people, including those who wrote about Gorbachev, concluded that this discussion is pointless. This comparison is pointless. But I think if we broaden the discussion, there's a, let's let's use this word, dialectic, (laughs) for, for once. There was a dialectic between means and ways. Both Deng Xiaoping and Gorbachev started reforms as a trial and error process. And in China, in the Soviet Union, once reforms were, you know, moving in the wrong direction, it was necessary to correct them and try something else. So in China, it ended in a tragedy. This corrective was very, very bloody, the Tiananmen Square. And after that, after a couple of years, after three years, you know, Deng Xiaoping returned to reforms. Okay, this is a well-known story. With Gorbachev, he, uh, ob- he basically was left without the instruments to change his co- or to correct his course, to readjust its course, because he lost the party. He dismantled himself, his instrument of the party. You can argue whether this instrument was inefficient, whether the party was hopeless or not. But he also lost the financial leverage. He lost control over profits of state enterprises because instead of giving those enterprises, as Putin later did to his cronies, he gave it to the red directors who went, you know, banana and began to make profits from themselves and their families. So he just, he was a King Lear. I write about him in a different context about him as King Lear, who gave, uh, gave away all forms of property and power to all kinds of people. And he ended up without anything. He, well, he, uh, by the end of 1990, he was still the commander in chief. He still controlled the army, the KGB, right police. So he was ended with the only instrument, minus financial, minus economic, that he could use force. And this was, of course, as we know, the only instrument. He didn't want to use this instrument. In the end of 1990, was another kind of bifurcation because essentially Gorbachev, since March 1990, had full constitutional power to introduce emergency uh, rule. But, you know, he didn't know how to combine this emergency rule with an economic reform. You know, here I am advising him 30 years later, which is ridiculous. Nobody knew it at the time, but theoretically, purely theoretically, he could have introduced emergency and unleashed economic reforms. That would have been brutal. 
that would have, of course, affected uh, the country in his popularity, but that would have redirected enormous energy of economic populism and political discontent and all this uh, dreaming dreaming socialism into the practical needs of survival and making money. Was there such a chance? I think so. I do think so. And moreover, when we read in in various accounts how so-called conservatives, including the deputies of the the Supreme Soviet of uh, the USSR, and in part many people even in Russian uh, Supreme Soviet who supported Yeltsin, but they were conservatives as well on, on the same characteristics. They wanted to have their Napoleon. They wanted to have their leader who would have done it uh, with force, with resolution to move country from that constant chattering phase to some kind of some kind of market economy, something resolute. In fact, one, one such person was Konstantin Borovoy, who was the founder of Moscow's stock exchange. And he later on, in a different context, said, oh, we need another Lenin, but a capitalist Lenin. <laughs> um, what about the West? And by, by this, I mean not just Western leaders, but what you, you and others have called the imaginary West. How did this play in, in all of this? Oh, that's two different questions. If I will think about the imaginary West, it's a huge topic. You know, you probably should ask other wonderful, brilliant authors. Eleanor, Eleanor Gilbert wrote a brilliant book about it. So I would pass on it. I can talk about it, but I, I don't think I'm the best person to talk about it. What I can talk about is the real West. And they're, they're all Western policymakers in this story. And a few things that are in the book, I think they're important. In a sense, you know, from... Uh, The fall of 1989, well, before the fall of 1989, Americans and the Western politicians, minus the left, minus the European intelligence, they are highly skeptical of Gorbachev. They still think that he's the talker, not the walker. And immediately they pass from this phase to the phase that some of them uh, begin to think that Gorbachev is real, but that means very soon he can be demoted and display, display, replaced by, by some guy, reactionary guy. And so from the fall of 1989, the Bush, the Bush administration appointed a secret group headed by Robert Gates, the Condoleezza Rice, to look into a possibility of Soviet collapse. And this group uh, comes up with all kinds of scenario. What would happen to Soviet troops in East Germany if, if, if there's a coup and, and, and so on and so forth. So during the spring of 1990, when events accelerated and Germany was being unified, the, one of the major tasks of Western leaders is to keep Gorbachev in power and support him by symbolic means, by political means, you know, one of those means, uh, as we know, was the declaration of NATO, that NATO would, would move from being a military political bloc directed against the Soviet Union to a, essentially a democratic society, as one British person uh, pointed out to me, NATO as, 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 as a society that helps old ladies cross the street. Right. Okay. 
And that was at the peak of pol uh, so heavy politicking in, in, in Moscow and Gorbachev had to deal with very rowdy Congress, the last Congress of the Communist Party. This news was served to him, dished to him, helped him. But when it came to money, and I write about it in my chapter in, in the spring of 1991, the West said no. And specifically, it was an idea of a great bargain, grand bargain. You know, we, we give Gorbachev a promise of the money in, in exchange for resolute reforms, such as Yablinsky 500 days and something like that. And that would be a very generous and specific way of forms once the Baltics. And yet it didn't work out. Uh, uh, the, uh, the Bush administration spoke unanimously, categorically, against this plan. And that's a separate question why, you know. There's one phrase that I found in the discussion of, that was from Nicholas Brady, who was very close to Bush, Secretary of Treasury. He said, we're not interested to keep the Soviet Union as is. It didn't mean unreformed. A big country with a huge military-industrial complex. What we all need, Brady continued, is to have the, the Soviet Union as a market economy that can rate country. So I well, I quoted it. I quoted it. And I found it really, really interesting that nobody picked on that before me. So that's my 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 minor discovery. So in, in a way, that was the course of not helping Gorbachev materially, but supporting, keeping him in power in, in politically and symbolically until the collapse begins after August. And then, you know, another episode when the Bush administration, who actually comes through as a, as a very important actor in this story, important actor that have a lot of weight in the sense that all participants of the Soviet drama listened to it and expected to, to, to reach out. Yeltsin let the Soviet Union be split into as many countries as possible, particularly Ukraine should be separated. The famous debate of September 5th, 1991. And uh, Baker's call basically says, oh, it's too dangerous, nuclear weapons, and we should have, try to operate with a reformed union. That, and maybe a better idea for the post-Soviet space to have some kind of a union because, and I quote this phrase, and it's not Baker's, it's Skolkrov. If Russia goes alone, it would become an empire. And again, I found it very counterintuitive at that time, but very prescient if you see the future. And I'm, I'm full of respect for the Bush people uh, full of respect, except, you know, at the end, they decided to do nothing. <laughs> they decided that they wouldn't take any of these roads in the debate. And in, in it's just an interesting debate, right? Russia has experienced, I mean, a number of revolutionary upheavals in the 20th century. We can start from 1905, of course, 1917. We can speak of the Stalin revolution, et cetera, et cetera. Why do we call the end of the Soviet system collapse and not a revolution? Well, I struggled with it myself, but I think one chapter is called Revolutions, and it's about 1989. Revolutions in Eastern Europe, in a sense, is some kind of revolution from above inside the Soviet Union, the spring and summer uh, of 1989. Uh, 
And there were many things that you can call, say, emblematic, emblematic of revolutionary times, no doubt. But I think in the end, the core of the Soviet Union, that is Russian core of the Soviet Union, did not have enough of revolutionary energy. Yes, there were marches in the center, mostly, you know, Soviet intelligence people from the military industrial complex. I, you know, I call it the March of Turkeys before Thanksgiving, you know, because in a sense, people who, who, whose jobs whose jobs would be eliminated by change, they demanded that change, all right? Very interesting. But it was not enough. It was enough for Yeltsin's separatism. It was enough to promote that idea of Russian Federation as being uh, bigger and greater than than the Union itself. And it led to tug of war, ruinous tug of war between uh, the center and the and, and the Russian Federation. But it was not enough for for the revolution. I know maybe people would disagree with me. I think in the Balts, uh, in the Baltic states, there was for the Amelie revolution. There was enough violence in South Caucasus. Ukraine and Belarus stayed quiet until August 1991, and even after that, actually. Central Asia was completely morose, with some exceptions. And what do you have? When August 1991 happens, that's a good way to measure the revolutionary forces. Who is against the coup? The different calculations, well, up to 100,000 people, maybe 150,000 people. That's it. That's it. Huge, you know, millions supported the coup during the first day in Russia and Ukraine, expecting that finally somebody in the Kremlin to, to, you know, to return to order. After all this talk, 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 and dispariatic and high prices and, and the lack of goods. Okay, so you have for a revolutionary element, but not enough. And then, of course, the coup collapsed so quickly, so suddenly, only three casualties, as we know with heroes of the Soviet Union, but there was not even enough time for this mini-revolution in Russia and St. Petersburg and other cities to develop. So all of a sudden, democracy won. And in a sense, I think there was an aborted revolution that even if there had been some potential for that revolution, it was an aborted revolution, it was immediately eclipsed by the title of my book, Collapse. And you read, as I did, you, you read the materials of the movement, Democratic Russia, okay. full of hope, full of fervor, revolutionary fervor. We'll have, we'll, we have like solidarity. We should follow solidarity. We should take power in, by the fall of 1991. And all of a sudden, our power fell into their lap or rather into Yeltsin's lap and they're clueless. And they're caught in mid uh, in mid flight almost, like that you know proverbial uh, firebird all of a sudden turns into a turkey <laughs> again, or turns into a turkey. And there, you know, you see their discussions and what they talk about in January, February, March, April, nineteen ninety two. They're com- they're plucked. They're plucked completely. They don't know what to do. They know that democracy failed. That there's a, a, a capital, crony capitalism on the march, that Yeltsin is unreliable and they should not support him till the end. It's the end of their dream period. You know, um, 
going back to the very beginning of the book, not the title, but close to it, you dedicated this book to all reformers. Why? But that's obvious, I think. Reform is, is, is in, for me, reform is more difficult than a revolution. In a revolution, you sort of, you seize power or you fail to seize power. You get decapitated or you end up being, you know, tyrants and dictators. Reforms are much, much more difficult. So in order to teach lessons to future reformers, you need to read uh, books like mine. You know, I'm, I'm being, being a little bit modest, but, you know, why not? A failure, a failure is a powerful teacher. What about globalization? I mean, you talk a lot about uh, the debt, the, the financial debt that the Soviet Union has, but also Eastern European states have to Western financial institutions. What, and what role does globalization, if any, play in this story? Well, colossal role, both it affected uh, Gorbachev uh, during the first years of his reforms, when he suddenly began to argue for new thinking and saying, guys, you know, we should join this globalization. All his slogans like a common European home, opening the country, those were slogans basically admitting we, you know, the, 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 the old uh, discourse of the two camps of building the second world, of being a communist world, we should join the global economy, which is the main, the main direction for, this, for, for the whole human civilization. So I think it affected him powerfully. He knew, of course, he learned very quickly on many counts about the success of Japan. What Dan Salpin has said, he probably had thought about it. And Dan Salpin, as we all remember, said, those who opposed the Soviet Union ended up being very poor. Those who sided with the United States ended up rich. So in a sense, it was clear it should be done. What he didn't think through, or maybe just because he was not particularly lucky with this, the Soviet Union was in the imagination of the West as a as a as a as a long time for with China, it lasted for a couple of decades, and then of course the fa famously China flipped in the Cold War in the Western American imagination. China never occupied the same place as Russia, and he was, I think, historical mistake not only of Gorbachev and his people that also Yeltsin and his people. Even more Yeltsin, I think, because Yeltsin claimed famously, the future belongs to Russia. And he, he did not even need, he did not mean semantic change. He, he meant that if the Soviet Union is disbanded, and in my book, I wrote that he really wanted to disband the Soviet Union. He played all kinds of games. He said many things, but he really wanted to replace the Soviet Union with Russia. And in his uh, view, that historical Russia would be different from the Soviet Union. It would be more capable of becoming a partner of the West. Even worse than the Soviet Union. And at the beginning, in the 20s, the Soviet Union was viewed by European and Western left as a promise for mankind, unlike that Russia that had been incarnation of all evils and backwardness. So that was naive. That was a little bit naive. And I think Gorbachev, what he did, he opened Soviet economy to globalization. But it was like throwing babies, newborn babies, into troubled waters with this kind of, okay, learn to swim, guys. And that, you know, was painful when I read the, the minutes of the military-industrial complex meeting 
in the fall of 1990, when all those people who, who, who were directors of big conglomerates building all kinds of stuff, tanks, you know, missiles and you know, all sophisticated equipment. But they were, they were guys who grew up and lived in complete isolation. Every step was controlled by the KGB. They never traveled to the West. And all of a sudden, the Soviet government of reformers tells those guys, now you're on your own, go abroad, find the foreign partners. And of course, the first thing that happened, they found swindlers who, who cheated them blind, totally. And you read about it, how eager they are to join the global economy. They invite people from abroad, mostly American economists who have nothing to do with you know, real economy. And those, if you're really careful with our businessmen, you, know, you have to be really careful. And they, they were like babies. Completely inexperienced in market economy, completely inexperienced in, 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 in to, to, to swim with the sharks that financial globalization actually unleashed. Do you, you know, so much of what you're, you're saying uh, throughout our discussion is really prescient. I mean, it, a lot of the issues that people were pointing to in those days and thinking about, and I, in many respects, we're st- are still with us to some extent. Do you th- are we still feeling the reverberations of the collapse of the Soviet Union thirty years on? Yes, I, I asked the same question when we had a, a discussion with, uh, with my wonderful colleagues and other historians, Mary Sorotti and Sergei Plokin, and we agreed that we no longer have the right to say that the collapse of the Soviet Union was peaceful. We simply have no right to say it. It was not peaceful to begin with, with the violence in South Asia, with violence in Tajikistan, in you know, minor bloodsheds in, in the Baltic states, which now looks like, okay, 16 civilians killed in Vilnius in January 1991. You know, now you have hundreds, thousands getting killed, you know, you know, and so on and so forth. So we have no right. And I think in the Soviet Union, of this, Slavs would get us that book and writing the chapters. And they wrote, you know, the war of the Slavs with a question mark. Could it have, st- could it have started in the fall of 1991 or in January 1992, specifically between Ukraine and Russia? And in retrospect, of course, back in, in that year of 2021, I was to my horror concluding that yes, yes, it could have started. You know, it could have started by miscalculation. It could have started by accident when they divided the Black Sea fleet and some sailors went Ukrainian, some sailors went Russian. It was a dastardly affair where everyone uh, thought of Bosnia, everyone thought of Croatia and, and Serbia. And it was really lucky chance that, you know, Yeltsin had another agenda. Yeltsin had another agenda. He wanted to join NATO. He wanted to join the West. He wanted to endear himself to George Bush in all call and other Westerners. And if you remove Yeltsin from this picture, he had a bunch of overcrime. So had it happened, this kind of Fukuyamian story about you know the happy ending of the Soviet Union would have never existed, but definitely now it's dead. One final question that I'm curious about. If you uh, could have a conversation between yourself 
from Jan August 19, 1991, and yourself today, what would you say to each other? Do you think you'd say to each other about this process of the collapse of the Soviet Union? You know, how do you think differently than yourself 30 years ago? Oh, uh, Sean, if I had addressed that guy, Zubok, in 1991, this guy would have said, you're an Andropian, Andropovian reactionary. You don't understand anything. We're building democracy and in a couple of years we'll be okay. So I don't think I would have convinced that Zubok guy of 1991 at all. And which is, you know, on one hand, it's depressing that our wisdom happens only uh, after the fact and after the event. At the same time, it's encouraging that, <laughs> that history is not, is not reducible to human cynical calculations, wisdom of the old. If wisdom of the old prevails, that's the end of history, not in Fukuyamian style. But <laughs> so I, I think it's wise to say, okay, you know, there are stages of life. We make ourselves fools. We participate in the epic events. I'm still proud that I did at the time. Now I realize, hey, you know, there was this more, more doom than I ever expected. And things should have been done differently. But, you know, that doesn't diminish my respect for me 30 years ago and for all those people back in 1991. It's tragic. It's, it's totally tragic. Had we had the, the, some kind of wisdom at the time, had Gorbachev had some kind of wisdom and experience at the time, probably it would have been better to have some kind of voluntary union that would have combined Ukraine and Russia, at least for a few years, at least for a transitional period. I, I, I think, I think to what I couldn't imagine 30 years earlier, you know, that suddenness, abruptness of this divorce between Russia and Ukraine, the, unle the, the, the way both nationalisms were unleashed so incredibly phenomenally during the first year, about 30 years later, and we were less fortunate with the Russian leader and those people who surround him. That was Vladislav Zubok. Vladislav Zubok is professor of international history at the London School of Economics. He has authored several books on the Cold War, the Soviet Union, Stalinism, and Russia's intellectual history in the 20th century. His new book is Collapse, the End of the Soviet Union, published by Yale University Press. All right. Thank you very much, Rusana. Um, so in terms of takeaways from this, this interview and his book, uh, Collapse, uh, I just have a few. There's a lot one can talk about, but, but I'll start. So the first thing that struck me, and I've been having this, you know, I've been doing the series of these interviews on the 1980s, um, and I've learned a lot that I didn't know as a result. And one of the things that historians like Zubok, but I think a lot of the people I've I generally interviewed is this question of was the Soviet Union's collapse inevitable? And it seems a lot of new thinking scholarship on this question is pointing to no, it wasn't inevitable. This idea of inevitability is rooted in uh, more ideology than it is in historical process. And he offers, you know, an argument for why it's not inevitable, why certain things occurred um, that allowed 
basically the rails to go off and the system to collapse. And he points to two, which are, are really fascinating, amongst many others, but two main things. First is the law and enterprises. So it's mostly an economic argument he makes. And the law and enterprises essentially allowed for the privatization, the de facto privatization of the Soviet economy particularly by directors of factories and enterprises. And the second is the law on cooperatives, which I admit I still can't wrap my head around the intricacies of, but essentially what the law on cooperatives did is it allowed uh, worker groups of workers and also managers to be part of a cooperative that can buy and that owns a factory essentially, but it's not the ownership that's the issue. It's the fact that they were able to establish banks and accumulate capital to establish those banks. And that, according to one of the things Zubok says, undermined the monetary stability of the system uh, and let it, and also the supply chain, uh, all the things that kept the economy together collapsed. Um, and the fact that when Gorbachev allowed for the, um, the end of the Communist Party's monopoly on power and taking part the party out of the economy, this essentially led to the administrative collapse of the system because the people who are running the country, who are, part, who are held together because of the party and the party structure, once they were allowed to basically leave or engage in different types of politics, this made the um, the fragility of the administrative structure quite apparent, and that ended with also contributed to the collapse. So these these are just three things that were really pivotal pivotal in why it went the way that it did. Um, what are what are, just, what are your some of your takeaways, uh, Margaret? Well. First of all, I want to say Zubok did a really great job during this interview of showing us the timeline for exactly how the collapse transpired, um, like how, how it could have possibly happened. And it fits really nicely. I, I wanted to compliment the 1980s series as this kind of cornerstone episode in understanding the collapse uh, from like a technical perspective through like having like being able to say there were these three events that we can point to as you know kind of explanations of of or begin the the start of the end um one of my takeaways or i guess questions that i left that uh, i was left asking myself is uh to what extent the binary between liberal chaos and stalinist order actually reflect Russian political reality. I mean, this is something that he basically said in his interview. Because I I was asking myself, because I feel like this actually is the way that I've always accidentally thought of Russia ever since I was little. Well, can you explain what you mean by this, these two binaries? Yeah, that there are two options, that there are two options for Russia, that you either have liberal chaos or Stalin-looking order. <laughs> You know, like it's either you lead with a strong fist or there's no unity at all, um, which started because I was thinking back what where it came from. And I remember being a little girl watching a movie about Ivan the Terrible and someone 
said, I wish I could remember who the character was, but that the only options for us, us being Russians, are order and chaos. That made such a deep impression on me. And it was posed as a fact in the movie that this is how Russia, because it was some kind of history channel uh, piece about Ivan the Terrible. And it was just like, this is the condition of Russian society for all of time in perpetuity is that it's either order or chaos. And that I realized that that's kind of how I've projected my under I kind of projected that onto my understanding of, of Russian political reality, even today. Uh, and yeah, that was really, yeah. That's a very pervasive trope, I think, among Russians themselves, that uh, some of the people who, you know, um, are pro-Putin or at least are neutral and they try to excuse uh, the Putin regime, you know, one of the arguments that they would make would be like, well, we need someone with an iron fist someone who would maintain order and like look back like let's look at our history we've always had these you know oftentimes you know the periods when we did well when we flourished were with rulers who um kind of led the country with an iron fist like stalin or um yeah Ivan the Terrible or maybe Peter Peter the Great or you know you can you name it which is it's kind of interesting because I don't know what the origins of this uh, of this trope are but they're definitely deeply internalized so it's it's not just coming from the outside but Russians themselves or at least some Russians share these beliefs which is, I mean, to me, it just sounds bogus. Um, yeah, if I, if I can comment on that, you know, this... So one of the things that, that Zubok said was this feeling at the time, all of these changes are happening, all of this openness, you know, small d democracy. And the fear was it could end at any moment and we could have a new 1937, Right. It seems that both of these positions, so there's the, there are kind of inversions of one another, right? There is the order disorder, and, and the way you framed it, Margaret, I think is right, where order is associated with a, an iron fist, and disorder is associated with, quote-unquote, freedoms, let's say. The flip side of that is, say, from the kind of liberal intelligentsia in Russia, is order is always a potential new 1937 and democracy or freedoms come with this flourishing of a pluralistic tolerant or or open society that's better right they're kind of inverted and what it seems to me is both of these positions are rooted in particular traumas so the first of the order disorder is well, the period of, say, the 1990s, to use a, 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 a more present example, um, was a traumatic period for us because of the disorder, the violence, the crime, the deprivation, etc. Therefore, we need order to maintain that. We need a strong fist. And the, the flip side of the, the, the kind of liberal, in, our liberal intelligentsia uh, figure is 
1937 was a repression, was such a trauma. Therefore, anything that speaks to order is the harbinger of a new wave of repression, right? Therefore, you gravitate to the other side. So what's fascinating in this is that both political orientations are a binary in and of themselves. They seem to not be able to find a middle ground. Um, and, and so I think that that's actually interesting in terms of these, the, the way these tropes that are held by, you know, as Rusana said, in many in Russia and outside of it, of course. Um, but yeah, this fear of a 30, like this can all end, all of this perestroika, glasnost will end and there will be a new 37. Um, was a feeling at the time, which speaks to this kind of uncertainty uh, of the period. And I always wonder when when those arguments are made, I always wonder why, well, at least as a Russian person and like when those arguments are made from Russians, I, I, I always wonder why there is this deep um, insecurity or like this deep disbelief that like we're not capable of running our own country like we're not capable of building a civic society yes there are these other uh europeans americans who somehow do it but for some reason for us it doesn't work because we're not able to yeah we're not able to kind of communally reach um certain like consensus um yeah, it's just odd. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Why is it? Where does that come from? I mean, is it because you've always been told like that that it's just this continue like these leaders that come to power, this is what they say that needed to happen and then it happened and it went how they wanted it to. And so But but that's not even true. I mean, if you want to look for it in history, you will find examples of when people mobilized and were able to achieve like goals, political, economic, etc. It's just kind of like it's like it's like a trope that exists that people like refer to, but it doesn't really it's not backed up by historical data necessarily. You know, I mean, yes, there were these other figures that were uh dictatorial but it's not all that russian history was right <laughs> so this kind of goes back to what zubok was saying in the interview about how reform is more difficult than revolution <laughs> that you know the ideology is easier to sell than policy policy is kind of measured it's boring the space for cynicism is grounded in reality you know it's easy for the people to just say, oh, that's not going to work because it's just so real. You can just see it. You can imagine it very clearly. Whereas ideological change is this fundamental change and you, you, you can hardly even imagine it. It's dreamier. It's vague enough to make space for everyone to see it, how it can work, and, and vague enough also to hope for the parts that potentially couldn't work. <laughs> and so it's kind of this distractionary... Uh, tactic to to change political systems. <laughs> well, it's it's it's, and this goes to my second takeaway, or more of a question of debate. Um, 
it's it's easier to destroy than to build. Like revolutionaries are very good at destroying things, uh, maybe not so good at at building. Right, that's a much more. It takes a it takes a political and and, and mental switch to build. Um, but this leads to my this this you know tension between reform and revolution. And I asked Vladislav this: Is why do we not consider why do we consider the collapse of the Soviet Union a collapse or a failure and not a revolution? I mean, the entire governmental structure changed. There was turnover of the elite. There was a, there was what I would call revolutionary times, right? There was a, a period in the late 80s where there was lots of energy in the air, um, a lot of political engagement and participation, yet it's not seen as a revolution. And I'm kind of curious of what both of your opinions are as to why we see it as collapse and not as revolution. Okay, so maybe my <laughs> my answer it will be a layman's answer because uh, <laughs> I'm not a historian, but it seems like um, even though revolution probably originally means something that is revolver, like it repeats itself, but like we come we came to understand revolution as something that produces produces some like an event that produces something radically new. Well, at least in my head, uh, right? And if we think about the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution in the 1917, it's like something it, something did change, but it also didn't just uh, revert to like an older system. It like produced something radically new that like the world hasn't known before. And I feel like the Soviet Union, yes, all of the things that you mentioned, Sean, are true. Uh, revolutionary times and um, a lot of profound changes in the society. But like eventually, what did it lead to? I mean, um, a kind of bad version, <laughs> a bad version of market market economy and like yeah like a bad version of capitalism so maybe like that's why we 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 often we, we often say dissolution or collapse because the focus is on something that was actually very different is no more that's how i would interpret it that's interesting. I like that, Rusana. Something that was different, but is is no more. Um, for I mean, the, why wouldn't I consider it a revolution? Or why the first thing that I mean were people involved on the ground in this shift in this economic shift? Like, was this uh, people led, like of the masses, kind of situation? Because it seems to me that it was just like crony businessmanly uh, that were just trying to uh, consolidate power and take advantage of vertical integration and be be as powerful as they possibly can be. Like Yeltsin's president and he realizes that there's one person that's more powerful than him and this is like if he gets rid of the Soviet system, then he can be the supreme ruler of his land basically uh 
So that's why I wouldn't see it as a revolution. The response that Zubok gave was this idea that revolutions are from below and this was from above. I actually don't agree with that at all because we also speak of the Stalin revolution, which was totally from above. Um, and other revolutions can come from above. So I don't, I don't, this... And I mean, like, even with Perestroika, I mean, it, it had huge popular support, right? And like some of those, yes, those measures were enacted by the party, but they were pushed for by the people. The, the, the societal mood was such that the party had to respond, probably, you know? Yeah. And there's contestation for power. Yeah, there's lots of, you know, so there's that. Um, second, I mean, <laughs> the revolutions in, in, in Eastern Europe were from above, <laughs> for the most part. Yeah, you had people demonstrating in the street, but you had people demonstrating in the street in the Soviet Union, too. Like, they, they were, they were ab from above. They was initiated because Gorbachev pulled the plug, right? So uh, I'm not so... And and this idea, and then also like, okay, the revolution that collapses Soviet Union bred this kind of like, you know, capitalism, whatever. Yeah, but you know, the Russian Revolution bred Stalinism, <laughs> which is a total. Many people say is an abrogation of the original goals of the revolution of 1917. But I guess that's the question: is the Russian Revolution like saying, like I feel like the Russian Revolution wasn't founded in Stalinism as much as this collapse of the Soviet Union was kind of founded in crony capitalism? Uh, I don't, I don't, I think that, I, I think that's, I, no, I don't think that that was a, I think there was a, a like most revolutions, and 1917 is that too, you had a variety of different politics. You had a contestation over, you know, politics, what society will be, right? Because remember, you, you know, in 1917, you just didn't have the Bolsheviks. You had right-wing and left-wing political formations. Or take the revolution of 1905. Why is 1905 a revolution? If, if you judge 1905 on the terms that we're judging the collapse of the Soviet Union, in terms of outcomes, what is new, etc., 1905 is not a revolution. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it's a revolution for a variety of reasons, but I'm, I'm more and more thinking about 1991 as a revolution as a result, not the other way around. 1905 is the Kerensky? No, 1905 is the, the October Manifesto. The Bloody yeah, Sunday. Yeah, Bloody Sunday, the const new constitution, the, the fact that they get a constitution, however weak and abrogated it becomes a couple of years later, it's still a, considered a revolution. And maybe it's considered that because that, that was a from below, right? That was a manifestation from below. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't really have I, – I think that we talk about – this is my view, why we think of it as collapse and not as revolution. And that is because we are working from the assumption that communist systems are – inevitably uh, against human nature. And if it doesn't succeed, it's because of collapse, not because of it being overthrown for other reasons. It, it is ide it's an 
already an, a, a historical aberration in and of itself. So it can't reform. It can't, you know, I mean, it's not going to succeed. That's already baked in. Its failure is baked in. I think this is the thing. So it's only talked. Well, what about China? I mean, this is, this is. China has been able to right, reform. Exactly. And incorporate certain capitalists. There you go. Um, and that's, that's, I mean, but I even think, I even think that I don't, I don't know enough about the Chinese case to say. Um, so, I mean, it could work as both an example of the fact that, you know, these systems can reform into something, whether that, whatever that something is. Don't you think it's more of a, well, it's a question to Sean as a historian. Don't you think it's a more general issue of looking at history through events and conceptualizing events as these like, you know, points where like you can identify easily before and after and because our history, and I don't know whether it has to do with just how our brain works and how we narrate things, uh, like our history is often told through these like, you know, punctuated uh, punctuated through these like important or pivotal critical events right and so that creates kind of an, an illusion that there is like a clear before and after whereas obviously i mean the collapse changed a lot of things fundamentally uh, but at the same time we also see a lot of continuities that are kind of obscured by the fact that we look at history through this kind of lens. Yeah, I think there is there's certain fetishism of the present and fetishism of the present and trying to connect the dots, certain dots and not others as to how we got to this point. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the old adage of hindsight, right? Uh, and it does it does raise a it, you know, are we still feeling the reverberations of the collapse of the Soviet Union? Or to put it in, in Margaret's terms, which I think are better, is the collapse still being negotiated? Um, you know, I think this is also allowed, it opens up a couple of possibilities. First is, and Zubok said this, you know, we can no longer, we can't talk about the collapse of the Soviet Union as a peaceful process, if we ever could have in the first place. I think that's a very interesting question. Um, we brought this up in the last episode with Scarborough exactly, as well. Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, he, he emphasized that. Uh, second is when we say, just take the Ukraine war, the war in Ukraine right now as a reverberation of the collapse of the Soviet Union, it has the potential to sideline, marginalize certain decisions that were made along the way on a more international level. By saying that it's, this is just me more thinking out loud, to me by saying like the Ukraine war is a reverberation of the collapse, which I think there's an argument to be made there, I'm not dismissing it, but it also, you know, covers up the fact that, well, if certain decision, different decisions were made in the last 30 years, maybe different paths would have been possible. So maybe if NATO didn't expand, maybe if a different configuration of the relationship between Ukraine and Russia, if 
they both had different leaderships. If there wasn't, you know, a Putin and there wasn't, you know, the oligarchic machinations in Ukraine, <laughs> maybe there would have been, you know, a different, if if the relationship between Russia, Russia and the Russian Federation or the Russian office, the Russian Socialist Republic and the Ukrainian Socialist Republic were different or something, a different outcome. I don't know. It, I'm kind of like going off the, the rails here, but... It does, it does raise the question of when we speak about the reverberations, what are we picking as a reverberation and what are we forgetting as not? How fatalistically and non-individually are we seeing these factors add up? Like a, kind of that, that these things are all just inevitabilities. Is, and that's the question, of course. That's why you bring it up. Uh, one of the takeaways that I had uh, was... Well, this episode gave me the impression that Gorbachev was very naive. <laughs> Even in his drawing inspiration from Leninism, which I didn't actually know that before, that he was so inspired by Lenin. Um, but it seemed like a lot of what, I mean, one of the major differences between Gorbachev and Lenin, of course, is charisma and ingenuity. Um, not to mention what Lenin made sure to do was to make sure that he didn't let power escape because controlling the mission was of the utmost importance to ensuring its outcome. And Gorbachev, and this is what makes me feel so strongly, uh, his naivete, gave away all of his power, and the only power he held on to was power he didn't want to use, military power. So this led ultimately to his mission, Piristroika, which was supposed to be this great revitalization of Soviet power to be this colossal failure. And... I guess I, I didn't realize before how uh, just how much this could have been avoided. And I mean, now I guess I'm making lots of assumptions, just assuming that Zubok was correct about everything. And in terms of that, he didn't have like a milieu of people that he could uh, kind of go back and forth with. But even in an ideological sense, it doesn't seem like he realized what a, what a major break Piristurica was in communist thinking, which he would have realized if he had kind of been more in dialogue with uh, a wider variety of peoples. Because as much as it made sense for him, and I'm sure it was, he saw in his head how it would work intuitively to the rest of the world, it obviously wasn't going to. I mean, maybe this is easy for me to say in retrospect, but it seems like he was really hedging bets against Lenin's beliefs. And against Bolshevism, because the Bolshevik cause, what they originally set out to achieve, the new leaders were basically admitting failure. Right? Okay, maybe my two cents about Gorbachev and Lenin, since you guys... <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, um, it does seem a bit naive from the present. Um but, I mean, I guess, like, I'm not as surprised by his obsession with Lenin, maybe because I talked about it with Alexei so many times, that, like, there was this kind of party-wide, um, and maybe even, like, a, this push was even wider than the party itself to kind of go back to the original word of Lenin, right? And to rescue 
socialism that way. It's kind of like, yes, the actual existing socialism, we made a lot of mistakes and there were a lot of pirigibe, there were a lot of things that went, that went wrong, right? But if we could only go back to that original vision and kind of follow through and maybe like um, really uh, live by that philosophy, that vision, would be able to amend things and would be able to be destroyed everything, right? And it does seem like really <laughs> naive judging from like the outcomes that we've already witnessed since then. But at the same time, I feel like the the moods of the time were such that people like I mean, a lot of people really subscribed to that idea and really wanted to see the change, but the, the, the change where they could improve socialism, kind of like, yeah, improve all the evils and drawbacks that we had and have like a better version, like socialism 2.0. Um, so I feel like it wasn't just him, but it was also like a lot of other people who kind of hoped for that. And, you know, like some of the things that you learn about, you know, people back then that they hoped that they would have, you know, the abundance of capitalism, but at the same time, the, the equal distribution of socialism that everyone would just, you know, flourish. And it's just like right now you think like, well, how would you even like think that would be possible? And it just speaks to the kind of hopefulness that was, um, yeah, that was shared by many. Yeah, in in this sense, Lenin functions how I how I mean I imagine Lenin functioning how the so called founding fathers function in American political discourse as this attempt to always go to you know it's almost like a a biblical impulse or religious impulse to go back to the word and in and through the interpretation of the original text you can find the true meaning and recover that true meaning in the text. Um, it's, it's, I do wonder if it's, if there's something about, um, you know, how, how religion, religious, how religion structures society and thought and ideology that there's this impulse to go back to the pure, the pure past. So, well, thank you very much for the discussion. Um, it's, this stuff fascinates me to no end. Um, so I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and of course, I'm joined by Rusana Novikova and Margaret Budik. Thank you very much for your contributions, both of you, on, on this issue of collapse. Um, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. So if you like, that means that if you like this podcast, please take a moment to share it on your various social media platforms and spread the word, get us more listeners. Um, and you can always drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, at the srbpodcast.org website to let us know what you think about what we're doing here. Um, and as always, we would love to have your support. As you know, the SRB podcast is a nonprofit educational endeavor. We're here to provide a service in many respects to help people learn more about the wider Eurasian 
entity, region, whatever we want to call it. And that means that it re relies on the support of individuals and other institutions to keep it free and open, free of advertisements. So please help us keep it that way by becoming a monthly patron and joining the SRB Table of Ranks. So until next time, bye. Bye. <laughs>